Really uh, glad to see you guys here today. We're starting uh, a new series today uh, called The Spirit of Christmas uh, that we're going to be in for the next three Sundays and Christmas Eve uh, will be part of this. And it's kind of patterned after the classic story, uh, The Christmas Carol. And I would guess that your family's probably not that different than mine in that you watch some version of The Christmas Carol probably almost every year. Uh, we're in a season of life where right now it's like, are we going to watch Mickey's Carol, uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, or Muppet Christmas Carol? Those are kind of the two choices. But we watch this story uh, every year, and, and you, do tell, you do as well, that this story's been told uh, dozens of different ways. Uh, it's been heard millions of different times since it was written, uh, believe it or not, in 1843, uh, this story was written. And I know you know the story, but if you'll just indulge me for a minute, uh, it tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a, at the beginning of the story, a fairly selfish and deplorable person. Uh, his old business partner comes to him in the evening and tells him that he has to change his ways or he's going to end up with the same fate that his business partner is in, uh, shackled by these chains, kind of condemned um, con condemned in the afterlife. And, and to, in order to accomplish this, he says three spirits are going to come and visit you uh, that evening, the spirit of Christmas past, present, and future. And the spirits come uh, that evening, and Ebenezer's life is forever changed. Uh, by the end of the story, he becomes a man of great generosity. And if you've seen that story, I'm absolutely confident you have. If you've seen that story, you now have the outline for every sermon you're going to hear in this series. Because uh, this series is going to follow it nicely. And what we want to do is we want to look at the way that Jesus came, Christmas past, the way that he's going to return, Christmas future, and the way that we respond to those two truths right now, uh, Christmas present. And that's going to be the outline of, uh, each, of the sermon, each of the sermons in this series. And we're, we're excited about it uh, to, to kind of walk through this content with you. So let's kind of start the series. That One of the things we know, there's a lot of reasons that Jesus came. But one of the dominant reasons that Jesus came again and again and again, kind of the reason for Christmas past, is that he came to bring salvation. Uh, this is said a lot of different ways all throughout the New Testament. Let me show you a few examples. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his, only one, his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And Matthew 1, kind of classic Christmas text, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So let's talk for a minute about this salvation that Jesus comes to offer. We have to, to understand it. We have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. As you know, we're in kind of a, a four-year plan to cover the book of Genesis, January to Easter each year. Uh, last year, we covered Genesis, Genesis 1 through 12, and then this year, or Genesis 1 through 11. This year, we're going to pick it up at chapter 12 uh, in January, and we're going to study the life of Abraham. But in that first section that we studied this last winter, we learned God's original intent for his creation that his creation 
would live with him in a perfect place forever, that there'd be eternal life in this place, that they would have relationships with each other, that they'd have a job to do and a contribution to make, that they would love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they would have these bodies that would never die, they'd never get the disease, they'd live forever. And this kind of perfect place existed in Genesis 1, it existed in Genesis 2, and then Genesis 3 happens. Right? And in Genesis 3, sin enters into the world. And what you see in the storyline of Genesis is that sin affected everything. The relationship they had with God, that in Genesis 1 and 2, they're uh, kind of uh, communing with God in the, in, in the garden in the cool of the day. In Genesis 3, they're hiding from him after sin. Uh, the relationship with each other is strained as a result of sin. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam kind of sings this. He's the first dude to ever do this. He sang a love ballad to his wife, Right? It was awesome, and that's what he does in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, he's like, hey, the woman you created did this to me, right? He's blaming her. Their work post-sin becomes difficult before it had been a joy. Their physical bodies are even affected as the result of, of sin, that now it's, it's broken and it's fallen, and so cancer and dementia and disease become part of the story. And what we see in Genesis 3 is that sin has a costly effect. And it was going to require a costly gift to make it right. Sin had a costly effect. And it was going to require a costly gift to make it right. Have you ever noticed as your kids get older, the more their gifts cost you? Right? There was probably a time in your kid's life where like, you gave them a ball and they were super happy with the ball. I remember doing that um, with Lila still at that age a little bit, but I remember doing that with Sam that we'd go to the store and be like, oh, I want the ball, I want the ball. And it, it'd be like 50 cents in the bin. And I'd buy it from him and he'd be, he'd be pleased. And, and your kids are probably the same way. And then they graduate from the ball to a leap pad and then an iPad and then a video game system and then an iPhone. And some of you are getting to the stage right now where your kids are gonna start to ask for an iCar and just the, the gifts get more and more expensive. The other thing that happens as you get older is the thing that we want most for Christmas becomes more, uh, more serious excuse me, than expensive. So it's like instead of wanting an iPad for Christmas, you might still want that, but instead of an iPad, you're like, I would like some peace for Christmas. Or instead of the car, it's like, I'd like reconciliation. Or instead of the expensive gift, I would like some hope. And the truth of Christmas is, the most expensive gift under the tree is Jesus. Jesus came to bring us the gift of salvation. He came to forgive our sin so that no longer, does, no longer do we have to hide from God. No longer does our sin keep us from having the relationship with him we were created to have. We're free to know him, worship him, and follow him. He came to kind of uh, begin the process of undoing the curse. That what I mean by that is death is still present in our world, obviously, Right? This season has really taught us that. Death is still present, but its future has been sealed. So in Christ, we get to live understanding that death has been defeated and we will be raised in Christ Jesus. In Christ, part of the way that he uh, is bringing about healing in the world is that relationships in Christ can be healed and restored. In Christ, we can live a life of joy, hope, and peace. He changes everything. He came to offer that salvation 2,000 years ago. And while all of that is true, here's what's also true. When he returns, whenever that day comes, when he returns, the Bible says that he is going to return as a judge. And this is the moment in the sermon 
where your preacher planning this series in August, talking about judgment the first day of Christmas sounded like a good idea, and now that I'm standing here looking at you face to face, it seems like less of a good idea. But the truth is that when Jesus returns, the Bible says he came to offer salvation first. When he returns, he is going to be the judge. He's gonna return to judge the world. And there's a couple different judgments you could talk about when it comes to Jesus, but I wanna show you in the book of Revelation, I wanna show you the great white throne judgment because it has the most to do with salvation and eternal life and the stuff that we've been discussing. So here's Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne. This is why it's called the great white throne judgment. Uh, Creative, right? And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, what's going on here? Well, as Revelation 20 unfolds, you see that this scene is describing a group of people who kind of rejected the gift of salvation. They rejected Jesus, and so the basis of their judgment, because they rejected the Christ, because they rejected that gift, uh, the basis of their judgment becomes uh, they are judged according to what they have done is the way the text describes it. That they are going to be judged when they stand before Jesus by their life and their works and their righteousness. And here's the deal, guys. I think some of us hear that and we think, yeah, fair. Everybody's just gonna be judged according to what they have done. That sounds fair to me. And I think that we think that that would be okay for a couple of reasons. One of them is that we underestimate our sin and how serious it is to God. And the reason we do that is we compare ourselves to others. And here's what is true. You can always find somebody that's a little bit worse than you are. And so we tend to compare ourselves to others. Kids do this all the time. Your kids get into trouble. They do something they shouldn't do. And they immediately begin to point the finger at other kids. And you would never say this out loud. So let me just say it out loud for you. What you want to say to them in that moment is, I don't want you to be like those other kids. They're kind of obnoxious. I want you to be better than that. And so we are kind of creating a vision for them to have a higher standard for their life and for them than other people. Here's the deal. We're not trying to be like our culture. We're not trying to be like our neighbors. We're trying to be like Jesus. And he is the aim and goal of our life. We want to be graceful like him, kind like him, faithful like him. We want to treat people the Jesus way. He is the standard in life. And so he becomes the standard in judgment. And the question becomes, when we stand before Jesus in all his holiness and righteousness, the question becomes, what happens when I then compare myself to him? When I compare myself to his righteousness, his grace, his holiness. See, what we do as human beings is a real bad combination. What we do as human beings is a real bad combination. We underestimate our sin, and we also underestimate the holiness, perfection, uh, holiness and perfection of Jesus Christ. And here's what it does. It creates in us a sense of pride and self-assurance in me that maybe I don't need God, maybe I don't need Jesus, maybe I don't need his grace after all. And here's the simplest line in the sermon, we do. (laughs) We need his grace desperately because we sin and our sin is more serious than we could ever imagine. And he is holy and he is holier than we could ever imagine. And he is the one who's on the throne. 
And this is a big deal. He's the one that's gonna stand uh, and judge. He's the one that's gonna bring about the judgment. And he is holy and our sin is an issue. I'm reminded of a, a text from the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah just gets kind of a glimpse of who God is. Here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his rope filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And look at Isaiah's response when he sees just a glimpse, a vision of the holiness of God. Woe to me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah understood God's holiness, Isaiah became acutely aware of his sin. And we live in a day where we don't want to be made acutely aware of our sin, but an awareness of our sin and an awareness of the holiness and majesty of God makes us aware of our need for salvation. And we don't want God judging us according to what we have done. We don't want that because he, he is holy and, and, and we, well, he is holy and we are sinful. So if I could say, if I could give you a gift for, for this Christmas, if I could say one thing to you, it would be this. When you stand before God and, and he's on the throne and he's ready to judge, here's the gift of Christmas. You don't have to be judged according to what you have done. This is the good news of Christmas. You don't have to be judged according to what you have done. There is another way biblically. You can be judged according to what Jesus has done. And this is an incredible gift for us to remember at Christmas time that we don't have to be judged according to what we have done. I don't want to be judged according to what I have done. I am a sinner and he is holy. You don't have to be judged according to what you have done. You can be judged according to what Jesus has done. This is described as the great, by the great theologian Martin Luther as the great exchange, the great exchange of Christmas. We all like a good Christmas exchange. This is the great exchange at Christmas that I give Jesus all of my sin. Terrible gift, all right? But this is my side of the gift. I give him all of my sin and he pays for it on the cross. And then the great gift exchange is that in exchange for that, he gives me all of his righteousness and all of his holiness and all of his perfection. This happens through faith in him. This happens through faith, that when I make him my king, my Lord, and my leader, this exchange happens. He takes my sin, he gives me his righteousness. And listen, We're talking about the judgment right now, and I'll get back to that in just a minute, but this is not the only good thing that happens when you decide to make Jesus your Lord. He leads you. He gives you a new heart. He helps you. He empowers you. All these amazing things happen when we decide to make Jesus our Lord, but this judgment element is one of them, that this exchange happens, and Jesus says, listen, you are a a sinner, and I am holy. Something has to be done about this. Let me give you my son, Jesus. He will give you all of his righteousness. Our family uh, loves the library. Uh, our, our son Sam loves to read, and so, uh, we don't, so we don't go broke, we go to the library. And uh, what happens at the library is you get to borrow their books to read. And the question of the judgment becomes, when you stand before God, whose book do you want God to read in that moment? Do you want him to read your book, or do you want him to read Jesus' book? 
That's what this text is describing, this library of books, that through faith in him, here's what happens, another kind of imagery of this. Through faith in him, Jesus lends you his book. He lends you his book with his accomplishments and his perfect life and his righteousness and the day of judgment when God says, all right, let me pull down the book of Steve Higgs, all he sees is the perfect life of Christ in me. And that is an amazing thing. We do not have to be judged according to what we have done. We get to be judged according to what Jesus has done. Merry Christmas. That's why he came. He came to save. He returns in judgment, but right now we're in this in-between space because we're celebrating Christmas when he came to save. We're looking forward the last couple minutes to the day that he's going to return to judge. And right now we're in this middle period that some theologians have called the age of grace. Some theologians have called it the age of the church, but right now we are in this period of time where you know what the Bible says about the time we're living in right now? This is why it's sometimes called the age of grace. Here's what the Bible says about it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can get the deal that I just described to you. I give Jesus my sin and he gives me his righteousness. He becomes my Lord, my leader, my empower, my help my salvation. And so this leads me to a question that maybe you have as well. How do we live in the present? All right, in between these two ideas of he came to save, he's returning in judgment, how do we live in the age of grace? Believe it or not, this is the exact thing that the uh, Apostle Paul was communicating to an, a young apprentice of his who was working at church. And Paul, you're going to see how Paul kind of ties the ideas together. And Paul says, this is how you live in light of these two ideas. Here what Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, so he's looking forward to that day, right? And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, but you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also all those who have longed for his appearing. So how do we live in the age of grace? How do we live in this church age that we're in right now? First of all, I want to address if you're a Christian, if you're here today or you're listening today and you're a follower of Jesus, I've got a couple things I want to say to you. Here's what I want to say. Have hope and confidence. I love how Paul says it in verse 8. Listen to the confidence of Paul when he looks forward to the day of judgment. He says, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. He has absolute confidence in the grace of his Lord. He has absolute confidence in the exchange that I just described to you. I give Jesus my sin, he forgives it all, and he gives me his righteousness. He has absolute confidence in the Christ. And I think people tend to be worried about Judgment Day, honestly, and they tend to be worried about the end of life for two reasons. One is they're not confident about how things are going to end. 
That's the first reason. Um, I understand this. Uh, back seven years ago, I had a sabbatical, and during that sabbatical, uh, I chose to study the book of Revelation. And then I came back here the next year and I preached a sermon series on it. Revelation as a book can be very unsettling. Uh, in the nativity story in the book of Revelation, there's a dragon trying to eat the baby. It's weird. Right? There's a dragon trying to eat the baby in that nativity. And there are dragons all throughout the story. There's false teachers. There's an antichrist. There's talk of hell. It can be unsettling. But you know what the point of Revelation is? If you, if you kind of take away all of that kind of stuff that you don't really get and stuff that people debate about, the point of Revelation is really, really simple. And here's what it is. Jesus wins. Amen. Jesus wins. That is the ultimate point of revelation. And because he wins, through faith, you win. And through faith, I win. And you could say this about any issue. You could say it this way. At the end of the day, cancer doesn't win. At the end of the day, dementia doesn't win. At the end of the day, heart disease doesn't win. At the end of the day, COVID doesn't win. At the end of the day, Jesus wins. So you and I can stand, as we look forward to the day of his return, you and I can stand here today in absolute confidence, not in fear, in absolute confidence, knowing that his grace is sufficient for us, his power is made perfect in our weakness, and because he wins through faith, I win too. The other reason people get worried about that day, the future day, is more urgent that I want to talk to you about, and that is they're not confident in themselves. The thing that I get asked the most as people face the end of their life is a very simple question. I've been asked it more times than I could even articulate to you, but here's the question. Have I been good enough? Have I been good enough? And people look forward to the day of Jesus' return, and they wonder that. And the gospel of good news is this. You don't have to be confident in you. You can be confident in Jesus. You can be confident in his holiness, his righteousness, and his grace. And so you can have your confidence in him because your faith is in him. And you can understand that on that day when he returns and he's ready to judge, he is going to see in you the perfect Christ Jesus. Because all of your sin has been paid for and all of his spirit is in you. And you can have absolute confidence in the love of your savior. You can have absolute confidence in his grace. You can have absolute confidence in not how things are gonna unfold that day because theologians debate. But you can have absolute confidence in that because Jesus wins, you win as well. And this leads me to the next thing for a believer. If you're a believer in Christ, here's the other thing Paul says. Man, if you're gonna give your life to something, Give it to Jesus. And he says, preach Jesus with your life. If everything I've said in this sermon is true, I like to believe it is, right? If everything I've said is true, then the absolute best thing you and I can do with our life is to preach Jesus, to lift him high, to correct, rebuke, and encourage. In other words, to encourage people to put their faith in Jesus and to kind of correct them when they're moving away from Jesus. With great patience and with grace, we point people to Jesus. We don't grab the bullhorn and start screaming at people. It is patient-filled. It is grace-filled. Why? Here's why. Jesus is the most important thing. 
So we just got done with this really divisive political season that our country's been in. And I would guess that in this room and those listening online, I would guess there's a lot of political opinions about what is right and what is wrong and who should have won and who shouldn't have, who, who shouldn't have won and um, who should have won and who came in second. There's, there's opinions abound. The most important thing has not changed and it's important for us to realize this. The most important thing has not changed and that's Jesus. His grace is still sufficient. His power is still made perfect in our weakness. His spirit is still empowering us to make, to make a change, and that doesn't change with who, whoever is in the White House. And so it's important that we remember this as believers because two things are gonna happen if we don't remember this. One is we're gonna end up giving our life to something that is less than. We're gonna end up thinking that the most important thing is that you be a Republican, or the most important thing is that you be a Democrat, or the most important thing is that you be an independent. The most important thing is that you follow Jesus. We're gonna miss that if, if, if we don't understand this truth. The other thing is that people are gonna be deprived from hearing about the most important thing. Their savior that loves them, died for them, and has a plan for them, and they're gonna end up hearing, if we're not careful, they're gonna end up hearing, no, no, no. The most important thing is that you vote for fill in the blank. The most important thing is that you give your life to this political party. They're gonna hear that if we're not careful. That's not the message we want them to hear. We want them to hear the most important thing is that their savior loves them and has a plan for them and is inviting them into a relationship with him and come to him. The last thing I would say to a believer is be faithful. Paul predicts that there is going to be a constant barrage of teachers and temptations that try to lead us away from Jesus as the second coming approaches. And we don't want to be led away from Jesus because he's everything. And I think this means a few things. I think we want to be grounded in his word so that we can know what is true and what is false. His truth is found in here. We want to be grounded in his word. We want to be grounded in relationship that we're in a season right now that for a lot of people, for health reasons, they have to kind of be away from Christian community. But there is going to come a time where we want to make sure to re-engage with Christian community and re-engage with the people around us because it is through Christian fellowship that we receive the encouragement we need to, be stay, to stay faithful. And so even for those of you that are home, try to find ways to do this from home through uh, messaging and phone calls and text messages and just do your best to stay in Christian community because there are a lot of temptations out there and we want to make sure to stay faithful. So those are the things I would say to a Christian is, man, be faithful, preach Jesus, be confident in him. If you're not in Christ, you probably see where this is going. If you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what I would say to you. Put your faith in him because everyone, you know what the Greek word everyone means? It means every person, everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't understand what I've done, everyone. You don't understand the sin of my life, everyone. You don't understand the mistakes from my past, everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on him, come to him. He is everything, he is our salvation. He is good, he loves you. He has a plan for you and wants to lead your life. He died for your sins so that you can be forgiven and free to know God in this life and in the next. Call on him. Everyone who calls on him will be saved. One of uh, Sam's first couple Christmases, what the, he was, it was the Christmas that he was about two and a half. We had one of those kind of big family Christmases. And uh, when we came down uh, uh, Christmas morning, 
everybody had bought for everybody in, in our family. And so it kind of looked like Santa had kind of puked all over her living room. I mean, there were presents everywhere. I mean, just presents all over the house. And a lot of them were for the kids. A lot of them were for Sam. And he was two and a half. And so we'd have him open a present. And immediately, he wanted to play with every present that he opened. Uh, and he'd open up like a coloring book. And he'd want to color for an hour. And we're like, dude, clock's ticking, dude. <laughs> we we got to get through this day. There's a lot of presents here, you know. And we're trying to urge him to not play. But he wanted to play. And it got kind of awkward. And so Cheryl and I kind of made a parenting decision. And we said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a couple of the presents and we're gonna put them into the basement and just as he gets tired of presents, the new toys that he has, we'll bring them up from the basement and he can open them and, and play with them uh, throughout the week. And it worked really well, but I gotta be honest with you, there's something really counterintuitive about it. There's something really weird about taking a wrapped present from under the tree and putting it in your basement. Right? There's something really counterintuitive about it because that gift is meant to be opened right now. That gift is meant to be opened on Christmas Day. It, it, it's meant to be enjoyed. So I just want to ask you, what is keeping you from coming to Christ right now, from opening the gift that has been given to you? Maybe for some of you it's like a family issue and you were raised in Christianity and it just was not a good experience. And that, and that kind of family issue is keeping you from Christ. Maybe for you it's a cultural thing and you just have a cultural idea of what it means to be a Christian and honestly, you, you don't like it, right? You, you don't like how culture has depicted Christianity and so that kind of cultural vision of Christianity just doesn't, just doesn't work for you. Whatever it is, I wanna encourage you to identify it because there's something that's probably keeping you from Christ. I wanna encourage you to identify it and just explore the idea with somebody that you know and trust of what it really means to follow Jesus. Because I bet it's different than the way you were raised. I guarantee you it's different than the way culture depicts. So maybe you find someone you know, maybe you find someone you trust, and you just have a simple conversation of what does it look like to follow Christ from your perspective? And just listen to them. I would love to do that with you. Um, I, I would love to do it online if you're home. I, I would love to meet with you and just talk to you from my perspective about what it means to follow Jesus. Seek me out, I, I'd love to do that because this is of urgent importance to me. Not just in terms of judgment, in terms of your life. I, I think Jesus gives us a better life. He gives us joy, hope, and peace. He gives us purpose and uh, a plan for our life. He empowers us through his Holy Spirit to make it through really tough days. And a lot of us have had really tough days lately, and the Holy Spirit helps us. So I, I think following Jesus is one of the greatest decisions you could make. And if you could just identify what is keeping you from him, just identify it. That's the first step, is just identify it. It's like, you know what? My dad said he was a Christian, and he, was, he wasn't great. My neighbor says he's a Christian. He's not. If you could just identify and then find someone that you know and trust and just begin a conversation. That's all I'm asking you to do. Begin a conversation of someone you love, trust, and respect and say, hey, I know you're a follower of Jesus. Tell me why. Tell me what it's like. Tell me what difference it's made. And I guarantee you they would love to do that, especially at Christmas. We're going to receive communion together. It's under your seat. And this is an opportunity for us to celebrate the gift that is Jesus. Um, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate the salvation that he brings, that he came and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross 
for our salvation and not just for future judgment, although obviously we talked about that today as part of the storyline, but for today as well, not just for a future day, but for today. He came to save us and to give us that joy, hope, and peace. So what I wanna do is I wanna pray. I wanna thank God for his gift of salvation. And then I'm just gonna leave a little bit of time of quiet for you to thank him for his gift of salvation. And then I'll come back uh, and uh, we'll receive communion together as a church family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift that he is. We thank you for that great exchange that Martin Luther talked about, that I give Jesus all of my sin and he gives me all of his righteousness. What an amazing thing. And even beyond that, Jesus gets to become my Lord and my leader and my empowerer. Makes all the difference in the world. Your salvation is great. Right now, we want to spend a few minutes just thanking you for your gift of salvation. We again thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace, his power, and his peace. It is in his name we pray. Amen his body given for you, for your salvation, his blood poured out. Thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. Thank you, God, for the gift of salvation. It is in his name that we pray, amen. Hey, I'm glad that you guys were here. Uh, we're gonna continue the sermon series uh, next week. and. Uh, I, for one, am grateful today. That, that was not nearly as awkward as I thought it would be, talking about judgment on Christmas Day 1. So um, uh, I appreciate you guys being a great audience. So thank you for coming. We're going to continue the sermon series uh, next week and uh, just continue to celebrate the gift that is Jesus. God bless. Have a great week.